Hey, so I'm going to do my own language warning today because as well as the usual dose of swearing, there's some discussion of depression and anorexia in this episode and I just wanted to let you guys know, specifically we talk a little bit about weight around anorexia and I know that's something that a lot of people can't listen to and if that's you, maybe skip this episode. From the kitchen table, this is Gate Closed Panic. In the distant past of 2011, I started a design degree. I did half of it before completely losing my shit under the pressure and transferring over to arts. Studying design taught me a lot. It taught me the volume of work I was able to produce under extreme pressure. It taught me some pretty fun hand typography skills. And it also taught me that the ethics of design was something I found really challenging. Consumption, selling stuff, selling a lifestyle, contributing to the aestheticizing of the world was something I wasn't really comfortable with and it's ultimately what pushed me over to sociology where I felt I could look at the way we construct our sense of self in a really rigorously critical way. My design degree is also where I met Melinda Gorwin, this week's guest. She was one of my tutors in first year and as a 20 year old I could not imagine anybody being cooler or wiser. Even after I left the degree I kept tabs on Melinda because I felt the way that she talked about design and its intersection with our daily lives was really rich and deep. When I gleaned that her PhD looked critically at Apple and the way that technology is shaping our lives it gave me a really perfect excuse to ask her onto the show. Melinda speaks with incredible candor about her personal life and how it's bound up with her relationship to consumerism and aesthetic culture, which I think is the case for all of us. I really don't know anyone who won't find something in Melinda's story that feels personal to them. Now, all things being equal, the next episode should be the last one of the season. I'm going to fly around the world with my mum for two months, which sounds ridiculous, but is true. So I'll call it for a bit on the social media during that time too. But please still let me know if there's people that you want to hear interviewed or subjects you want to hear discussed. I already have some really interesting things lined up for season two, but I'll be back at the bottom of the episode with some more details on that. Until then, enjoy. Okay, it's on. I'll oh. turn it on a moment ago because I didn't want to shock you with it. <laughs> okay, cool, no problem. So my name is Melinda Gorwin and I am a PhD candidate that's in limbo land because I've just handed in, well, not just, about two two months ago, actually, nearly two months ago today, I think, uh, sent my PhD off for examination. So I'm waiting for that to come back and then intrepidation and then sometimes it will be geez that was just like the best thing ever anyone has ever written ever <laughs> and then and that will be on the good days and then on the bad days it will be that is a pile of shit um why did you do that uh yeah so that's where I'm kind of at with a PhD I can't look at it mm. um, I can't open it up to look at it and then I am a design tutor at Uni SA design or studio educator and design theory uh, tutor in communication design, but my uh, focus on design is more so how design designs us. So there is a uh, two female uh, design thinkers actually, Anne Marie Anne Marie Willis or Wills, I think it's Willis, mm-hmm. and Susan Stewart. Uh, write about the capacity for us to design humans as a as a people to design things that then turn around and design us. So I talk to my students a lot about that, mm. and I talk to my students about that in relation to consumerism, consumption, and how we are how our desire for consumer products is manufactured, and it's an ongoing, never sated experience that once you buy or satisfy the urge for one thing big or small you're kind of on that 
high, you're on a high for a little bit, all the endorphins are released and then slowly but surely the thinking is replaced by the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I, and that, that, I mean, that's what informed my PhD mm. really, that I was interested in why Western society especially has been manufactured in that way and how mm. we pass those ideas on to children and how we can not stop it because I don't think that there's any stopping it but how we can critically talk about that mm. and make people aware of what's going on. Wow. Good intro. <laughs> no, that was great, really. Oh. Um, okay, we're going to – I'm going to build up to that now basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So starting whenever is relevant for you. So yeah. lots of people start at school but mm-hmm. you don't have to. Yeah. When do you remember your first sort of interest in something that might have become work or just directly in a job? Well – so I should say that the PhD is on Apple, so it looks at the um, ah. looks at the relationship between design, desire, consumerism, and Apple. And my relationship with Apple started really early because mm. I'm an old lady. I'm not really. <laughs> I'm 42. But the interesting thing is with Apple is that I have grown up with it. Mm. And funnily enough, Apple uh, came into being four days before I did. So they went public. Uh, on April the 6th or the 7th, don't hold me to it, um, 1976. And then I popped out on April the 10th, 1976. Wow. We always joked that they had to use forceps, so that's why my head is like that. Not really. <laughs> yeah, and so I've lived with Apple my entire life. Yeah. And we, I think I was about 10 when my entire family went to a computer store which was near the old Regent Cinema, um, not Regent Cinema, uh, one of the old, old cinemas in Adelaide anyway, to look at this computer called a Macintosh Classic. And it was beige and not nothing like what we have now um, and Dad was buying it because his grandfather actually was buying him the computer so he could finish his studies in medicine. Mm. And what happened was that, and this is all in my work, a sales assistant, we went many, many, many times because my dad wouldn't buy something without researching it, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, like that whole you've got to wait and then if you're still thinking about it, go yep. and get it. Yep. Except that I think about stuff all the time, so I'm <laughs> always getting it. Um, yeah, we went to buy it. And the guy, the sales assistant, showed me what I could do with it, like old Mac paint and which is before any kind of, like, uh, design software, way before Adobe Suite. Like, I'm talking 20 years before um, the Adobe Suite around about. And I was just like, this thing is just so cool. Yeah. As a 10-year-old, I'm like, this is amazing. But I also thought the Apple logo is really cool because it had, like, it was an Apple and I'm 10 and it had a rainbow on it. Yes. Yeah. It's so appealing yeah. as a child. I remember thinking the same thing. Yeah. And, um... Then when we bought it, the sales assistant handed me some stickers. So that was Apple's, which they still do, give out free stickers. And I was just like, stickers! (laughs) This is so cool! And I stuck it all over everything. And then we had this computer. So that was how my relationship with Apple began. Wow. But prior to that, I was sent to uh, Annesley College, which was because um, my mum taught there. There was no way we could afford to send me, my family could afford to send me to Annesley. I only went there because mum was working there and I think we got discounted yeah. tuition. And it was also kind of expected within my family circle that the children should go to private school. But we weren't in a soci- socioeconomic position in uh, to enable me to compete with my peers so I was the home haircut kid Mm. from the environmental family that had like poo in the yard because Mm. dad was cultivating a veggie patch or something like that and I was ostracized because of that yeah and I so that was my earliest memories of conspicuous consumption or positional or emulative consumption, which which is the, the consumer um, terms, consumer cultural consumer terms. Mm. And it basically means that you are positioning yourself in relation to others through the material goods that you ha- have. Yeah. 
And then there's the Cabbage Patch Kids story. So all the kids uh, had Cabbage Patch Kids and not to have one was really isolating mm-hmm. and I didn't have one because uh, I wasn't allowed all the things that all the other kids just seemed to always have, mm. including food as well. So I always felt very different. I always had sandwiches that were like odd hunks of bread with globs of butter and then weirdly cut things of cheese. And I just remember feeling dreadfully embarrassed about it as well. And then so I pleaded and pleaded and pleaded for a Cabbage Patch Kid dot one. It was like if you get an A on your piano exam, because I learnt piano, you can have a Cabbage Patch Kid doll. Mm. So I practiced, 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 and I got an A minus, and the minus was just like, oh, I'm so shit. But I still got to have one, and Mum took me to David Jones, and <clears throat> I picked out a clown, a limited edition clown-looking one, and it was bald and had one tooth, and um, I took it to school thinking that I'd arrived. Yeah. And then, but then shortly, like I'd say two, two to three days, I just didn't like the thing at all. I was like, this is not making me feel, I thought it would make me feel like I was part of something mm-hmm. and included but it didn't at all and all the kids still treated me the way that they treated me so I kind of like abandoned it and then I can't remember what I fixated on in terms of a material good next but I'm sure I moved on to that so they're that they are my um that they're the seminal experiences that I had with consumerism and consumption yeah. and apple yes that shaped my entire kind of academic trajectory yes yeah Yeah. wow so when you were kind of getting to the end of school Mm. how was your kind of experience of the last sort of few years as you were moving towards you know the real world and grown-up life and that that terrifying period (sighs) well so around about like I always enjoyed and was good at acting and singing Mm -hmm. and I had decided at about 14 that I was going to be an actress and I performed I got a 20 for drama in year 12 and I got into drama school and um Mm. all of that at Flinders University Mm. and um yeah that was kind of where I was going but at the same time and I think it stemmed from also uh, uh going to these schools where I felt less than I got really sick so I got sick at um I decided I remember reading a book it was deeply unhappy anyway but I remember reading a book called The Best Little Girl in the World and it was um it it actually went on to be made into a film with Jennifer Jason Leigh and it was kind of like a blow-by-blow account of how to become anorexic so I was like and I was already t- teetering on that um, edge anyway. I was, yeah, I thought it was huge and it was kind of impressed upon me that being thin was the ideal way a woman should look. Mm. And I've come to terms with that now um, because uh, my mother and my grandmother were also shaped by what came before them as well. So I've come to peace with that and actually watching Mad Men helped me come to terms with that because I could see the shaping uh yeah so I read this book and it was like step by step so I was just like that's what I'm going to do so I just became really really ill and for um I would say 14 to 22 I was trapped severely in anorexia group and I died had to go to hospital a number of times did a number of stints sitting on a bed being fed three meals and three snacks a day not being able to move which I also think uh I mean I understand why it was done but also I think that it's it's it was an appalling way to treat illness Mm. so and I but I still within all of that I still you know did really well in year 12 and got into drama school and tried but I was always like um having to go um, because I was just so sick so I couldn't and there was no way on earth to be an actress or an actor you need to be really strong Mm. um and like I'm sure they're all really fucked up but, but they managed to be fucked up in a way that's productive yes 
and you yeah there's just no way I could could do it mm. yeah and so I had to let that dream and that was my dream like that's what I wanted and I and I was told and I thought deep within myself that I could make it as well and I yeah had to let that go and that hurt for a really 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 long time yeah um, and I wasn't able to go and see live theater I could always watch films because I love films and um go and see contemporary dance but yeah like having to let that go was really 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 hard yeah and um how, yeah. how old were you when you decided to leave the drama? drama probably about 20 20 I went back to drama school when I was 22 but I had fallen in love for the first time and the guy was traveling to Europe mm. and I because it was first love I was deeply attached to him so I was like I'm going to leave and just go and travel around Europe. Was it the first time you travelled? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we went away for, um, he went away for a year, I went away for eight months. Yeah. Wait, was that out of your parents' home and into that trip? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was it? Well, I actually had gone over on my own before and just fallen into a heap because I thought London would be like, probably, I think I was about 18, 19. I thought London would be like a bigger version of Adelaide and I um, <laughs> I remember standing in King's Cross Station, uh, peak morning, Monday morning traffic, this tiny, I would probably weighed about 48 kilos, with this massive backpack on, this uh, ties into my research too and my parents had bought me one of those brick mobile phones and just <laughs> dialing them up on the walkie-talkie yeah just going like well yeah falling apart mm. so but because I was with Trent that was his name um it was fine and yeah. it was fine yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um what made you decide to come home after the eight months oh we that was always the plan yeah we weren't going to work or anything we were just going to going to um come back yeah, yeah. and in yeah. the end I really missed Adelaide, yeah, yeah, place, Adelaide. Yeah, yes, it has that effect on a lot of people, I think. Yeah. So when you came back, what did you do next? Then I went and did. Um, then I went and re-enrolled in uni to finish off the um, degree in film and film theory, mm -hmm. and I did some um, production, like made some films, like little short films. Mm. And, yeah, the idea went to be being like I'm going to work in film. And then after that I moved to Sydney mm -hmm. to kind of try to get into that industry. But that just became about living um, because I was working in retail in order to, uh, in a poem I wrote, only just survive. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that just didn't last. So I lived in Sydney on and off for about three years and then came back to Adelaide. Mm. And all that time, a friend of mine had introduced me to yoga when I was probably about 22, mm -hmm. 20, no, 23, 24. So I was practicing yoga all through that time. Yeah. And then I came back to Adelaide and, and just got on the yoga train really, really, really heavily. And then eventually my yoga teachers asked me to teach. Mm -hmm. And I started teaching and then I taught yoga for four years wow. but I at the end of the four years I was like I need something to stimulate my mind because yeah. I have a highly academic mind and I needed to keep on learning probably within formal a formal institution yeah and I had this shitty job working as a data entry operator and if there is one thing that will hurt the human mind, well, in my opinion, it's entering medical data for seven and a half hours a day. And I was terrible at it. I would like, and I'm a perfectionist, so it hurt like hell. But I would enter everyone in as a female and I was always getting told off. So one day when I was looking on the internet, we weren't allowed to do that, but I did it all the time anyway <laughs> because the internet is addictive. I saw, I was drawing a lot at the time and I saw the, it was called Bachelor of Design 
visual communication or graphic design or something and I was like I'm just going to do that so I enrolled in that and then loved it Mm. like I was I think I was 31 when I went back Mm -hmm. and and then yeah it was just it was excellent like first year all about working with color and shape and design principles and it was like I had a freedom just to create stuff yeah and then and I uh my first theory class was with my supervisor the woman that ended up being my supervisor Mm -hmm. and I remember like sticking my hand up and going oh I mean I didn't do this but this is like kind of like how it was hi hi my name's Melinda and I want to do a PhD so I was pretty determined that that was something that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I wanted to do a PhD on consumerism and I knew I wanted to do a PhD on the effect um, emotion has on consumerism choices. And I was pretty certain that it was going to be about Apple. So even wow. that was like really early around yeah then what do you think planted um, that seed that you wanted to make that into a phd what apple or well i mean to have that much clarity about what you want to do as your phd in first year mm. is pretty unusual was there something had you taken a class had you read a book no was there something you well done i'd that? read um uh i still thought apple was really cool at yeah. that stage um I don't think that now yeah, at all. I was going to say that's foreboding sentence. Um, yeah. Um, they're a funny company. Yeah. Um, I'd read Naomi Klein's No Logo. Yep. I read Clive Hamilton's Growth Fetish. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I know now to what I knew then, like I, I really didn't know anything yeah. at all. But I knew that I was tied to consumerism yeah. in a really – addictive I would say way or it's not drastic but I could see how I was beginning to see how consumerism consumption and consumer culture worked to define people yeah more and more and more and more yeah okay so tell me about your experience of undergrad that undergrad I should say that undergrad yeah so I did end up getting the degree in film yeah so I've got two degrees one with honours and now should be a doctor by the end of the year. Yes. So, that, yeah. Which, when I'm feeling uh, really bad about myself, I go, no, look at that. That's, you know, that's that's good. Yes. You've done well, girl. Yeah, you know. impressive. Yeah. Um, so, undergrad, it was great. I loved it. Yeah. I met some awesome people, Lauren Bazina being one. Yes. Still very, very wonderful friend of mine. Mm. Um, met some very talented people who I kind of all plucked as well it's like you 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 and they all laugh about it because I'm like you'll be my friend you'll be my friend you'll be my friend <laughs> yes which is you know I'm sometimes I'm a bit worried that I was a bit horrible about my selection but not everyone can be a designer this is the thing second year was really rough because it was um I think that was more from a teaching perspective I found the teaching really odd in second year yeah and then third year is just hellfire it's just you just thrown into it you've got to do all this stuff it the courses design courses at uni say are hard yep. work yeah coming from doing a film there are so many more uh rolling assessments or just constant work yeah that is required for design mm-hmm. so it kind of looks like everyone's just playing with glue and paper and crayons and stuff but there's yeah the uh, volume of work is incredibly yeah. high yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and I'm just marking student assignments at the moment and I um they just they just so much so much work yeah so I actually encourage students now to consider going part time yeah especially if they're a lot younger because mm. I'm concerned about the um ability to retain the information if there's so much of it yes yeah yeah I think that's a fair yeah concern yeah. having done half of that yeah yeah, yeah 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 okay okay cool so as you were drawing to kind of the close of that mm-hmm. in third year what were you thinking you were going to do next were you hoping to dive straight into your PhD um I was uh at, in at 
during third year I fell in love with designing and also mm. the uh, adrenaline of designing and the uh, click of designing, like, you know, you're a group of designers. And the thing about the third year is that you're your own creative director mm-hmm. and that you're working with a whole group of other people who know that they're their own or think that they are their own creative director. And yeah. you are, like, you're, um, you are moulding are your designs mm-hmm. uh, in um, communication with your tutor and other students, mm. but it's nothing like working in the industry, nothing yeah. Yeah. like it. And so, yeah, I, I loved it. It was great. So I was like, I'm going to go out. I, I, I'll leave the PhD um, and I'm going to go out and work in the industry. Yeah. So I managed to secure a, um, a uh, internship. Prior to graduating, and went out into the world and did that, and yeah. that didn't work out. Okay. So I left that for about after about six months. Okay. And kind of semi started up my own freelancing business and yeah. got freelance freelance work pretty wow. pretty like I think the day I left, hmm. um, no, the day after I left, someone dropped a big job in my lap, which was. Branding for Red Door, not branding, package design for Red Door Bakery. Wow. Yeah, so that kind of fell in my lap and I did that and then I did a few other things. And I often think had I not decided to go back to university, it probably would have rolled along. Like I would have just Consistently, hustled. yeah. I would have, yeah, hustled that. But I, I was also getting to the point where I was beginning to realise that design, that I had a, a moral and ethical problem is probably too hard a word but like I was critical of design's use for consumerist means only yeah and working as a designer there is no way that you can get away from that working as a um a commercial designer no and I didn't want probably not this eloquently back then (laughs) but I didn't want to fuel that persistent fire of consumerism and individual you know neoliberal individuality like you know we design in order to create things that look good so you want them um and i yeah uh, i there's a article by rick pointer he's a design theorist called the time for being against and he says in there that um the world is looking it's a it's written a long time ago he said that the world is looking pretty slick these days and someone must be responsible and I love that quote because it's like it's happening. We everything around us is becoming increasingly slick mm-hmm. and designed, and then we have an expectation that things look slick and designed. That's then it's difficult to not be slick and designed. Yeah. And my concern with that is is that it's um it's not just about stuff now. It's about our faces and our bodies. So. You know, we've moved from, and my students will laugh when they hear this or read It's because they're like, oh, she always wrote something about this. But, you know, it's gone from being, like when I was growing, it was all about Kate Moss, emaciated, super, super thin. Yeah. Now it's like abs, strong as the new skinny. And you're changing your face, having Botox or whatever is not, is about you being the best you that you can be. Yeah. And I, I had like... I understand that as well. Mm-hmm. So I kind of can see it becoming a thing, can mm. see how that that people changing their face, that it, that sooner or later everyone will be changing their face yeah. because that's just what's done. Yeah. So and it's a perfect example of design, designing mm. us. So I completely forgot the question. Where were we going? Um, so we were, you, we were talking about, you having gone out and started oh, working right, right, freelance, right. but yeah. then obviously you made the decision to go back to yeah. university, and I assume yeah. that's what tipped you into yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. this. And I love writing, and I love reading, yeah. and I love um, going down the rabbit hole of research. Yeah. So I and university was a safe space for me. I'm quite comfortable there. Yes, and so I applied to do honours, got in. Did a honours thesis, twelve thousand words, which I think is a hell. You go from doing twelve thousand words to up to eighty thousand words between sixty to eighty. A PhD between 
well, really should be about 65,000 to 80,000 words. Okay. So the jump from doing honours to a PhD is massive. Yeah. Yes, I did it on Apple. It was called I Think Differently and it was like my first foray Mm. into talking about Apple in terms of um, design theory. Mm -hmm. I looked at the advertising, some of the advertising and it was all very – my tendency was to go, wow, guys, look at all of this stuff. Look at all of these readings. Look at this theory and that theory and that thinking yeah. and that thing and try to ram it all in yeah. rather than so, yeah, the critique of that was that it was – I still got first class. It was all fine because um, you need first class to go on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was like this needs to be deeper. Yeah. So and then – so that happened – and then I'd already decided I wanted to do a PhD. I pretty much had said that from the outset of going back to honours. And then I applied to do a PhD and to get a scholarship, mm-hmm. an APA scholarship and a university top-up. And that was accepted in the first round, which was awesome. Yeah. But what had happened and what I would suggest to people that do want to do a PhD mm. is that the, the small bit of industry experience I had had mm. plus the awards I'd been awarded at university and also through AGDA stood me in good, good stead um, to get that scholarship. Right, Because okay. scholarships are based on point systems. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, you have a certain amount, you accrue a certain amount of points and that kind of gets you in or doesn't get you in. Yeah. 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 Mm. But also there are two strands. Actually, they're they're different things now, but there's um, two strands of scholarship. You've got like a national one that comes from the Australian government Mm -hmm. and then you've got it. um, And then after that, there's a university one that comes Mm. directly from the university. So if you don't get... The national one, there's still an opportunity to get the university one and right. the top up. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So it's still possible if you don't get the national one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, was was it kind of clear to you how you would make that research deeper when you were going into your PhD? If that was kind of the critique of your honours, did you know how to do that? Um. No, not really. Mm-hmm. PhD is um, a hellfire. It's like trial by just jump in and do it. Mm-hmm. You're doing everything for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you shouldn't – I mean, they say don't do a PhD because you want to be a doctor. And um, that's true to some respect, but I think that that's also – you know, like, of course there's going to be an element of your ego and all people's ego, I think, that go, yay, I'm going to be a doctor one day. I'm not going to be able to save someone in an aeroplane, but I can consult them on critical theory and uh, discuss their consumer purchase while they're dying or, you know, hold their hand. <laughs> Just look at the apple glow. Look at that glow. Yeah. Um, so, no, like, you go in and then um, – and I'm uh, – I'm really hard on myself. So you go in and you have to do, within six months, you have to do a literature, you have to write a proposal and that needs to be passed for you to go ahead. So one week in, I find out that's going to happen. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. So always driven by this sense that doom and gloom. So you do that, you have to do a literature literature review, a fairly in-depth literature review where you look at the uh, look at the lay of the land of where you're attempting to make a original contribution. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Apple was that in my opinion and then through the research that I'd done, it wasn't critiqued from a design perspective. And the design perspective um, that I was going I, – the, the – manner in which I was addressing it was that more like a psychological design design yeah. us designs us perspective mm-hmm. um the products had been looked at mm. but generally apple is discussed then not now mm. by what they looked like yeah and that they looked great mm-hmm. and therefore if they look great then apple's great yeah but I was seeing people bumping into one another while they were walking down the street. And all of this stuff's talked about now. And it's really interesting because WWDC, whatever it's called, 
www.sportever. I don't even know what it is, the worldwide something or other. Um, Apple released all their new updates and everything. Um, and one of the things they're having in their new iOS is uh, monitoring screen time. So there'll be an app that you can, that's built into the iOS that uh, will tell you how much you're using your phone mm -hmm. and how what what things you're using it for and like how long have you been on Instagram, how long you've been on Facebook, right, 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 right. But none of that was talked about for four right. years ago. Yeah. The thing the thing with Apple and the and and the hard thing about researching Apple is that it's moving so quickly. Yes. And the response to Apple is also moving quickly too. So a journalist and a lot of journalists are talking about elements that are um, written about in my PhD, but my niche, I guess, is that I've researched it, like I've gone in and I've done the research yes. and I've, um, over a, a lengthy period of time, yep. and, um, and yeah, so I, what I hope is that it just goes out to the world and it becomes part of the data on yes. Apple, Yeah. and my, my thing was that we need to talk about Apple differently mm. than, um, and deeply than what was going on back then mm. so um but I so my original research proposal was not passed so I had to rewrite it yeah um but I actually what it is and this is another thing for, <laughs> for PhD students or people who want to do it you don't need to prove that you're smart in your um proposal it's kind of that's another thing as well. Like there's this expectation that you need to say ontology and epistemology and um, yeah. praxis and <laughs> use all of these gigantic buzzwords. Words, but um, that's old, old language. Mm. And it's totally fine for people like Foucault and Barthes and Derrida and all of that lot mm -hmm. to be writing in that kind of way because they're from that period. Yeah. But in my view, it's better to write clearly yeah. so that everyone can read it. I don't like this idea that academia is this hallowed institution that you need to, that's elitist or you need to have a certain vocabulary in order to understand. I would prefer yeah. my work to be able to be understood by almost anyone. Anyone, yeah. yeah. And I'm still going to use ontology and epistemology but I would um, help you understand what those, what those things mean. mean yeah but don't ask me what they mean now because I might fuck don't it up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna hold you to it <laughs> yeah, um, okay um you said earlier that you had kind of started out thinking that apple was really great and that you don't think that now what do you think? Now? I think that it's just got everyone by the short and curlies, and that's like my um, that's my you know, if I could have, I did say that in the PhD, but not in that kind of not in that way, not in that way, <laughs> but um, that's how I would talk about it on Instagram, or you know, if I was talking to people about yeah. my research, mm. um, and that it's not so much well, this is what came out anyway, that it's not so much about the things being status symbols and it, it's all coming out in the journalism at the moment. Mm. They're not about status symbols anymore where it used to be you had like an iPhone and that's why I got, like I got an iPhone as soon as it came out in mm -hmm. Australia. I was like, this, that look, oh, look at me, look at me, <laughs> I'm so cool, I've got this thing, you don't have that thing, I've got the thing. <laughs> And I remember my, my dad's uh, wife, Christina, got one and I was like, I got it first and I couldn't believe that that came out of my mouth. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> um, yeah, so it used to be about having it but now it's just about it's a, a need. Yeah. It's not a want anymore. It's a need. Yeah. And um, my phone, the last phone I had, because um, I was – I won't buy another Apple phone after this one dies. I'll get a fair phone, which is the most ethical, sustainable phone that you can get in the world at the moment. Mm. Um, and I was determined that I was going to get a fair phone when my last phone died, but it just died. Like my nephew was around. He was over for a uh, sleepover and we woke up and my phone had just died and I'm like, 
I need to go and get a phone mm. because everything was on there. The mm. way that I communicate with the world uh, was on there and I needed it. So I yeah. had to go in and go in and get one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that is how it feels. Yeah. Like yeah, a real yeah, need. Yeah. yeah. And I um yeah, my I wrote a paper called Not Without My iPhone because that that's what my what my thesis is called. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wrote a paper for a Making Waste conference, mm-hmm. um, which I just recently read out to the first year students. Mm-hmm. And it was it used my own experience with how I relate to it um, to talk to them about how they're really addictive or they, they design you to, to interact. So it was just about how I um, and how they move us uh, all over the place. So you'll be like, we could be here now. And then the phone, we pick up the phone and we look at Instagram and we're off with natural geographic in Botswana. Mm. Then we've got an ad for Sabo who's having 50% off clothes at the moment. Then we've got a friend who's having coffee with another friend. Then there's another ad for a sale. Mm. Then there's some active wear. Then there's some, you know, rock hard abs, and so you're just um, you're everywhere all at once. Yes. So your mind is just never. Uh, it's harder and harder to be present. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think that they've done. And it's not just Apple. Mm. Um, the thing with Apple is that their rhetoric, so the way in which they uh, persuade us to buy into them is they say, they blatantly say, we make life better. And I question that bettering and I also question whose life is bettered and um, who suffers for that betterment. So another reason that I thought about Apple when my attitude changed to to Apple um, was when I read about Foxconn and the treatment of workers in China Mm. um, in the Shandong region of China at the Foxconn factories and um, what happened was that people were committing suicide yes and and young people as well and um, as a way in which to curb the suicides Allegedly, uh, Foxconn installed suicide nets to catch people when they jumped and made it a clause of people's contracts to not commit suicide. So I hereby sign I'm not going to commit suicide. And there's a YouTube video of Steve Jobs talking about it and then saying that, yeah, it's really bad, but statistically more people in the US kill themselves as a, um, yeah, than in Foxconn. And I was just like, so it's bad, but it could be worse, and therefore we don't yeah. have to apologise for Yeah, it. well, it's a way in which to kind of negate the, yeah, yeah, to take, yeah. So, and then I was just like, that doesn't sit right with me at all. Nor should it with anyone, really. Yeah. No, and people don't know that. People don't know that that's what, yeah. what's behind um, your iPhone. And they, and they don't know... Um, that when they open those new shiny Apple packages, there are many, many, many human hands um, that have gone into making that available yeah. for rich Westerners to buy. Yeah. And rich not being like, say, Hollywood stars or, you know, but people who have the capacity to to buy those things. Yeah. So that's when I was like, when people were like, oh, the Apple Watch is just really, 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 really good. And I'm like, why? What do you mean by good? Why do you, yeah, what do you mean by good? Yeah. So I did that too. So I did an autoethnography. Autoethnography is when you use yourself and you collect data on yourself in order to make to make assumptions, not assumptions in that like a, a broad sense but in a deep sense about wider social issues. So I wanted to look at... The app. Uh, well, I was just lucky because the Apple Watch once again was released on my birthday. So we have this connection between me coming out when Apple comes out mm. back in 1976, all the way up to the Apple Watch being released mm. for purchase, pre-purchase, on my birthday. 
So yeah, I bought an Apple Watch and um, wore it for 12 months in order to check my experience with it. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. I really didn't like it at all. Like it was just like this is, and it came out in my journaling, this is too heavy, it's too tight, and it's too close. And I didn't really like, um, I found the uh, data gathering on my exercise and my calorie intake and my um not calorie intake, it was standing, exercise and walking. Mm-hmm. But I think because of my experiences with anorexia and that, you know, heavy curtailing of food and exercise and worry, that really sat badly with me and I uh, was concerned about younger people who are measuring themselves by these these circles. Yes, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we it's just, yeah. Just why why are why do we quantify ourselves? Why do we increasingly need to quantify ourselves? And why do we think that that's a cool thing? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. It's a question. I think there is some satisfaction that I don't know. If I think when I think about the way that we quantify ourselves, I'm always reminded of when I was a teenager doing quizzes in Dolly to find out what of which of the four people I am. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some satisfaction in being told who you are or what type of person you are. I think yeah. it, 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 there's a promise of it making life slightly less confusing, perhaps, yeah. which is maybe what's appealing about it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, in yeah. the end, doesn't actually have that effect. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is the promise that comes with a lot of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. I guess the uh, just to sort of start to wrap up the what are you what are you kind of hoping to do next to change or to work on if anything um well I did wake up the night I handed in the PhD and went oh I think I'll enroll in law I think I'll just go and be law and I I would like if I could I would but Mm. I kind of have to try and have a career now I guess yeah um so I and waiting, so in August I'll get the feedback and then we'll see what it is. And you have to wait that long. I do have to wait that long. Yeah, one Shit. of the people that's um, marking it I think is on a sabbatical. So, yeah. Mm-mm. So. Will you keep working at uni? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've just wrapped up, we've just wrapped up study period three. Mm-hmm. So I taught theory across all the years in one studio. Mm-hmm. So I'm like mired in marking at the moment. <laughs> Which is really hard. Marking is, is, I want everyone to know that. Marking student work, especially when you've taught them and you develop those relationships, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll be teaching two studio classes next in study period five and one theory. Mm-hmm. I'm working with the new professor of communication design on um, looking how we can uh, accept and trust robots the more that they become, um, that take on human jobs. Mm -hmm. So working on visual languages and communication design around that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also doing a helping facilitate a sustainable fashion workshop in October about how we repair and reuse our clothes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all of these things are happening. And then my hope is to write the PhD up into a book for everyone. I did get an – I did – I was in negotiations with a publishing house in Australia, but that fell through, mm-hmm. which was horrible. It yeah. was really hard. I cried. But it just wasn't the right time. Yeah. And, yeah, keep on teaching. And I went to New York – the day, no, two days after I submitted my PhD, I went to New York and I booked the trip, one, because the fleet, fleet the flights were insanely cheap, mm-hmm. um, but also as a carrot um, to mm-hmm. keep me going to get the work done. Because that's the thing with a PhD, you can like uh, just push it out and push it out and push yes, it out. Yeah. But I wanted to get it done. And yeah. I, as the crow flies, it was just under four years that I managed to get it done, which is good timing but everyone takes you know different lengths of time yeah but going to New York was really good because all of a sudden I was in this 
place that's not like Adelaide at all, yeah. not like I thought London was going to be. And I could just walk around and see all this stuff that I felt always just looked at in films and, um, and read about in books. And, mm. and that was a really good breaker between finishing a PhD and then what comes after because fin- handing in your PhD is uh, really intense yeah. because you've been working on this thing for close to four years mm. and then all of a sudden it's not there. And so when I came back, I would just walk around uni going like, I remember walking up to my desk and just standing there and going like, what do I do now? Like all of a sudden I have all of this kind of free time. Yeah. Because when you do do a PhD, you never, you you don't have a day off. You're always thinking about it and it's always there and it's, like I said, it's a learning curve. PhDs, and this is what all the professors and the senior lecturers say, um, that it's just training. It's just so you can learn how to be a researcher mm-hmm. and it's the beginning of your research career. Yeah. So it's like the more you think about it as training, um, the less you, you know, the less overwhelming or horrible yeah. it is, but it's still horrible. But it's great too. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I keep on teaching. And also mm. New York made me realise that I, because I was pretty attached to Adelaide because it's comfortable, mm. my um, partner's here, my spoodles are here, who I was going to bring today, but they would have tried to eat everything, and, <laughs> um, but they're very cute. I love them. <laughs> and so I was like, and it's safe. Like I felt very safe in Adelaide and I, and I was okay to stay in that safeness. But going to New York just made me go, I don't need to stay in Adelaide. I can go out into the world and because there's still an element of me that really wants to make my mark yeah um and I am fairly driven mm-hmm. not in the like I don't want to be famous but I I want the things to be read about and talked about and discussed yep. and I'm um I work well in that environment yeah so yeah I just keep on going and yeah. yeah yeah and there'll be setbacks and there'll be you know really good stuff and yeah but the plan and I just keep on I mean if they keep on employing me in the USA I'll take the work because it's good work too you know to be getting to to have all of that crap happen Mm. you know to um have such a tumultuous start Mm. and then all of a sudden realizing that you're nearly a doctor that you're you've got it together that you're teaching design at a university it's like, okay, I must have done some good things along the way. Like it's, you know, yeah. yeah, it's, and I enjoy the work. And that was such an important part of my working is that I needed to, I can't, yeah, I need to enjoy what I'm doing. Otherwise yeah. I feel so bankrupt. Yes. Like, yeah, doing the data entry stuff just, it was just. It taught yeah. you that you can't. Uh, no. Do work you don't like. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And some and some people don't care. Yeah. There were people that did that and they're like, I don't care, I don't want it. My life is outside of my work. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm happy. I don't, um I'm happy just to be like this. Yeah. And I'm like I'm too restless. Yes. I need to strive mm. for something which is, you know, why I was like, Oh, I'll just do law. Yes. <laughs> for everyone would kill me. They would be like and the, the, my supervisors would be like no more. No, you just need to focus because yeah. it's like I have this mind that's like, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> what know. can I do next? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Cool. Amazing. Great. It was really good. Oh, good. Yeah, it was really So, good. like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is the penultimate episode of season one. Next season, I have some really brilliant people and ideas already waiting in the wings, but that likely won't air until about October. To stay up to date with season two and also to get in contact with me about people you want to hear interviewed or things you want to hear discussed, find us on Facebook and Instagram. I will be back in a fortnight with episode 18. Until then, I've been Sarah Bell. This has been Gate Close Panic. I will see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.